me as I speak to these, your beloved people. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I want to encourage you to be bringing Bible, uh, either old school Bible or look it up on your device if you have that, but I encourage you to look. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the back. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those. It's our gift to you. We want you to, to take, take that and, and benefit from it. If you're joining us today, we've been walking through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount over the last number of, of uh, months. We began, and we're going to continue that today, picking things up at verse 21 in a few minutes. Um, number of years ago, hard to believe, it's almost five years ago now, you blessed me and my family with a sabbatical. And so uh, one, one of the things we did, the, the big thing we did in the middle of that over the months July and August, uh, five years ago this summer it'll be, was we did a cross-Canada trip. We bought an old motorhome. Our oldest son was graduating high school and going to college in September, so we thought, okay, this is kind of our last shot. And so we bought an old motorhome and we made plans to leave Edmonton and go all the way to uh, Newfoundland, as far east as we could go. We hit Cape Spear. We, we made it, spoiler alert. And so, but in, in preparing for that, I want to describe for you one of the ways in which my wife, Christine and I are fairly different. Um, I'm more of a big picture guy. I thought, okay, for this trip to happen, we need a motorhome, something that will work, something that we can fit in, something that will get us there, Lord willing, and back, uh, something we can all sleep in and, and get that. And that's kind of, and then we, then we can go on this trip, right? Like, then let's go. Let's see stuff. Let's do stuff. That's kind of my big picture approach. My wife, on the other hand, she's more into details. And, and so she began months ahead of time to build what can only be described almost as a, a social studies project. She had a binder, and she had a section for each province, and she began to do research. And she, she had the provincial flags and the provincial flowers and stats and places to go and things to do, and she, she found all these... RV, motorhome, club thing. She found so many details. And, 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 and that overwhelms me. Just even knowing that that binder, I'm like, let's just, let's just drive and see stuff. Let's do stuff. Very different approaches. Now, that proved to be a marvelous mix. At times a challenge, but a marvelous mix. Because the reality is Chris Lane can get so bogged down in the details that she misses the big picture. And the reality is, while we were doing the big picture, let's just go and see stuff and do stuff, there were lots of times where we needed those details. And all that she had prepared was, well, not all of it, the flags and the flowers, I don't know that that ever came in handy, but so much of what she prepared proved to be really helpful to us. We needed both. We needed both the big picture and then the details. I share that with you this morning because this morning we're going to be looking at uh, a, a larger block of text, verse 21 to verse 48. And if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that there are six sections. And so what we're doing this morning is we, we are taking the big picture of those texts. And then we're going we're gonna to 
double back over the coming weeks and we're going to walk through each of those six sections individually and look at the details. But today is about the big picture. You've heard the expression, um, missing the forest for the trees. We don't want to miss the forest in looking at the trees. We're going to look at the trees. The trees are important. The details are important. But today is big picture. We're, we're trying to get a sense of the forest so that we're, we, we understand the details right. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this about this next block of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He said, the danger in dealing with a part of Scripture such as this is that we shall become so immersed in a consideration of the details that we will miss the essential teaching and the great principles with which our Lord was, the, which our Lord was enunciating. So today we're looking at the big picture. We want to see the forest this morning. Now, before I turn to the passage and read it, I just want to bring us up to speed. Some of you are just joining us today, and I want to remind those of you who have been with us some of the ground that we have already covered. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. This is his largest block of teaching that we have in the Gospels, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus begins this just before this, uh, going to Galilee, proclaiming the good news, the gospel, the, the good news that in his coming, God's kingdom is breaking into the world. A whole new order of existence is breaking into the present. The future is breaking in. God's kingdom reign is invading earth. At, when the gospel is proclaimed, as it takes hold in a person or in a community, something happens. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount describes what that something is. Lives are changed. Lives are transformed. People begin to exhibit new characteristics. They begin to have new ambitions. They begin to live in new ways. That's what I've said the Sermon on the Mount is. It's describing that new life that that happens when we hear and believe the good news. So Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. It's not a new list of rules. It's not the, the old law cranked up a notch. It's not the law on steroids. No, Jesus here is painting a picture of what gospelized lives look like, what gospelized humanity looks like. When we hear the good news that in Jesus we receive grace, in Jesus we receive forgiveness, that from Jesus we receive the, the filling of his spirit to lead us to live in a new way. Our lives are changed. They are transformed. Now, We've walked through the beginning of the sermon. In the beginning, the Beatitudes, there are eight blessed are statements. And, and those statements describe Christian character. Uh, what our lives, be, the, the character we begin to exhibit when the gospel takes root. We are poor in spirit. We come and begin from that place of recognizing that we, we are spiritually bankrupt, that we are in desperate need of grace. We become those who mourn. We mourn over our own sin and our own brokenness and the sin and brokenness of the world. We become meek. We don't have to push to the front of the line and defend ourselves. We know that we're broken and we know that we have all that we need from God and His grace. We begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're not righteous, but we long for all things to be rightly related. We long to be rightly related to God. We become the merciful because we've encountered the merciful one. We become pure in heart. We desire one thing, and that is Jesus. We become peacemakers. We, we run into the chaos of this world, the brokenness, proclaiming the Prince of Peace and proclaiming His peace, the peace we have found. And then we become those who are persecuted because as we live as citizens of His kingdom, the kingdoms of this world, 
will crush us at times. From the character of the gospelized, we turned next. Jesus spoke about the influence of the gospelized. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That is, God says that his people have an incredibly vital purpose to play in this world, to, like salt, to, to prevent, to hinder decay, and as light to dispel the prevailing darkness. The last time we were together, the last time I spoke, we moved into a beginning of a section uh, that, that precedes what we're looking at today. And there Jesus addresses uh, the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, see, God's, uh, sorry, Jesus' contemporaries needed to figure out what to do with Jesus and how what he was saying related to all that had come before. See, Jesus came and, and he spoke as one with authority, but he also spoke and, and cheesed off the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. And so the, the, the people hearing him had to make sense of, what's he, is this a completely new thing? What do we do with God's word to us, the, the Old Testament scriptures? And so in the text we looked at last, and this is important, Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets. That is, I've, I've not come to get rid of, to destroy all that was said in, in God's written revelation. Not to destroy it, to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Come to fulfill it. And if you were with us two weeks ago, you know that there are various ways that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. And I'm not going to go into those details, but the rest of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins to explain, interpret for us, help us grasp what God said in his word, in his law, his commands. Help us to understand the original intent of all that God has said. So I want to read. We're going to read through this longer text of you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along. I want you to have a sense of it as we move into this next section. Beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. 
But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." I want to do four things with you in the time that we have together this morning. First, I want to ask a question. Second, I want to make an observation. Third, I want to offer a reminder. And then fourth, I want to share some principles. So first, a question. What exactly is Jesus doing here? What exactly is going on in this portion of his sermon? Some commentators entitle this section, these next six paragraphs, as six antitheses. Antithesis is an opposite. So in the world of sports, you could say an antithesis would be uh, winners and losers. If you're thinking about food and eating, you could say opposites. Antithesis would be hungry or satisfied, full. So opposite. So some people call this, well, this is six antitheses. I, I don't I, I don't know that that is actually helpful for us. People give that heading to this section because of the recurring language that we encounter here. Six times Jesus will say something to the effect of, you have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. But we, we need to wrestle with, is Jesus providing antitheses? Is he giving opposites? What, what exactly is, is he saying something that contradicts with what the Old Testament law and prophets said? Some take it that way. Some understand that Jesus here is over against the Old Testament law. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And they contend that that these are antitheses, but I, I want to contend that, that that is wrongheaded. It doesn't make sense because Jesus has already said in the text we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets. That is not to do away with what God has revealed in his written revealed word, but to fulfill it. He's already made it clear that the Old Testament stands, that the Scriptures are good, that the law is good. We're not under the law, but, but even Paul says the law is good. How are we to understand this? So what is going on? What, what exactly is Jesus doing here? And I want to contend, I want to argue that Jesus is not, in fact, providing antitheses. He's not providing, uh, he's not standing in opposition at all to what God has revealed in his written word. He's not contradicting it. Listen, listen closely to what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said. He does not say, you have read 
or you've heard what Moses wrote. He says, you have heard that it was said. Jesus is speaking about the teaching, the mistaken, misleading, misguided teaching, uh, the, the misguided understanding of God's word. That is, the religious teachers of the day are teaching people, here's what God says. And Jesus is correcting that. Remember I said last week, one of the ways that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets is by explaining it, exegeting it, helping us to understand what God always intended. We know this to be the case for at least two reasons. First, as I've already said, Jesus says the law stands. The law, the, the law and the prophets, God's word is not junked. He's not starting a new thing. He's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. But secondly, look with me at verse 43. What do we see in verse 43? He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Have you ever found that in God's word? Right? Love your neighbor, yes. Hate your enemy, that's nowhere to be found. You can search, you will not find it. We're never called to hate our enemies. And so Jesus is not speaking about God's law, God's written revelation in the Old Testament. He's speaking about what they have heard, what they have been taught by the religious leaders. Now, the situation in Jesus' day would be very similar to what was the reality when the Protestant Reformation began. One of the things that the Protestant Reformation provided people was the Scriptures. You see, leading up to that time, a couple of things for us to understand. First of all, uh, many people were illiterate. Books were exceptionally rare because they were very expensive. You couldn't just go to chapters or log on to Amazon.ca and order a book, order a Bible. Books were handwritten, hand copied. They were very expensive. Not only that, but the Bible was in Latin. You, you'd go to church before the Reformation and the, the priests would read Scripture to you in Latin, which you didn't understand, and then they would tell you what, what it said. Only they didn't always get it right. Which is why when Martin Luther read Scripture and he realized, hang on, what we're teaching is not what Scripture says. And so the Protestant Reformation happened a few decades after the invention of the printing press, and the scriptures began, began to be made available in the vernacular, in, in the common language. And so for the first time, people could have the Word of God and read it. If I asked you right now, how, how many Bibles do you have? Like, we, we have, I, I could make a stack up to my waist probably. I have 10 or 12 in my office, different versions. At home, I have boxes of old ones that I duct tape together that I just... I don't want to throw away the Bible. I mean, we have, and probably some of you would have a little bit of a stack too. But that was not the reality in the Reformation. And so that's what we need to understand uh, in Jesus' day. They didn't have the printing press. They didn't have their their, their, their Bible on their smartphone. They went to the synagogue where rare and expensive scrolls were read and taught by others. And so they had less... That they were dependent on the religious leaders for the teaching that they received. Totally lost where I was. Anyways. The reality is, here, here's, here's what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. The Roman Catholic teaching before the Protestant Reformation was a false representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It said you had to believe in the sacraments to be saved, and that apart from the church and priesthood, there was no salvation. That's what people heard. And so the Reformation brought about this great uh, turning to the Lord as people heard the gospel, the, the message of grace. And so there's so that's what's going on in Jesus' day. Jesus is not opposing. He's not abolishing the Old Testament Scriptures. He's not contradicting it. These are not opposites. He's giving a true account, a true interpretation of what God said in His written Word. Here's what Carson writes. Jesus appears to be concerned with two things. Overthrowing erroneous traditions and indicating authoritatively the real direction towards which the Old Testament Scriptures point. That's what's going on. That's what Jesus is doing in these six paragraphs. He is revealing, he is interpreting, he's helping God's people. He's helping his listeners hear the heart of what God has always said, intended in his law. Secondly, an observation. I'm going to highlight something that is very important for us to understand, not not only as we study this text, but as we encounter Jesus more broadly. Look with me at our text. Over and over and over again in these paragraphs, we encounter these words, but I tell you, but I tell you, but I tell you. That that is no incidental detail. Jesus taught with authority. Those who heard him recognized that he taught, unlike the the teachers of the law, the scribes of Pharisees, he taught with authority. This is about, I've already made this point, think about this. Jesus is not contradicting what God has revealed up to this point, His written word. He's not correcting it. He is rightly interpreting it. And He's doing so on the basis of His own authority. But I tell you, but I tell you, Jesus is saying, I who am speaking to you am the very one who gave the law to Moses. I am the one who gave the law to your ancestors. I'm speaking on my own authority. I tell you. I tell Jesus was no mere man. Jesus was not some teacher, some rabbi. He was not merely a prophet. Jesus was God in, in, in fleshed. Jesus was there with Moses. Jesus was with Israel. He gave them the law. He is the one who gave them the Old Testament Scriptures, who gave us the Old Testament Scriptures. And here he is saying, I tell you, he speaks with authority. He's infinitely more than just a teacher. He was and is God. He is the Almighty in the flesh. He is the great lawgiver. And here he is helping us to understand what God has always intended us to hear. Third, a reminder. I've been saying this over and over again, and we're a long ways from the end. You'll hear it again a few more times. I've been contending that the Sermon on the Mount is is descriptive. It, It describes what our lives look like, what our lives are to look like, what our lives look like as the gospel is heard and believed, as it takes root in our hearts, as the Spirit of God has His way in us. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. The Sermon on the Mount is not the law cranked up or the law on steroids. Lloyd-Jones says, it is not meant to be a detailed code of ethics. It is not a new kind of moral law which was given by him. We need to understand that as we come to this and we ask, what is this? What are we encountering here? This is not a new set of rules for us. It is a description of gospelized humanity, a description of what our lives become, how we are changed through the good news that in Jesus we receive grace. In Jesus we receive forgiveness. In Jesus we are purified. 
from Jesus, we receive his righteousness. We are clothed with his perfection. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We pass from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that our identity is radically changed and our lives begin to be transformed and we begin more and more to look like what is described here. Now, I know that that can feel a little ambiguous and we're not always comfortable with that. We, we like, how many of you like checklists? It kind of simplifies things, right? And so, so we approach our, our walk with God often in that way. Well, show me a list of what are the things I'm not supposed to do? What are the things I'm supposed to do? We can check the boxes. We have this sense of control, like we can attain this. We can do this. But the reality is we can't. That's why the Sermon on the Mount begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who recognize their utter need. That's where it all begins. And, and, and we need to stay, stay anchored to that. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, they, they were all about checklists. Remember I said in their legitimate desire in the beginning to see God's people walk in obedience and faithfulness, they had created 613 other laws. Remember I mentioned that a couple weeks ago? 248 positive commands, things they were supposed to do. 365 uh, things they were not supposed to do. Prohibitions. And, and, and by giving the people, here's all the things you are supposed to do and not do, and if you do this, then you'll be right with God. We'll be faithful. We'll be walking in obedience. Gives you a sense when you have that list, that little checklist. Gives you the sense that somehow uh, righteousness is something you can attain. It's what they believed. But the life that we are created to live, the life of faith, life of the kingdom, is not just a matter of following some code of ethics. It's not just a matter of getting certain rules right, certain externals right. You know, as long as you don't kill anyone, you're good. As long as you're not actually in bed with someone who's not your spouse, you're good. I mean, that's, we, we think of this external checklist. When I was in high school in Ontario, I went to a Christian high school. I remember one chapel service, a, a pastor came in, and I remember this so clearly. He gave us five don'ts for dating. I remember them today. Don't unzip. Don't unbutton. Don't unhook. Don't push up or pull down. You know where our minds went? I mean, before we got out of chapel, we thought Velcro. And, and does that really mean that anything we do, as long as we stay in our clothes, is fine? Is that what you're saying? Like, with all due respect to that man and his desire to call us as young people to sexual purity and obedience, we make this checklist. We're missing the point. The gospel of Jesus is not a system of ethics. It is the good news that in Christ's coming, we encounter a Savior. That, that in Him we receive grace and are clothed with righteousness. That in Him we receive His indwelling Spirit to empower us in a life of growing obedience. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. It's, it's a description of what our lives look like as the gospel takes root and bears fruit. The new life that is produced in us. 
when we believe that we are loved and forgiven, when we understand that we were created for a relationship with the living God, that we are created to be image bearers, our vision as a church is that we would be men and women, young and old, who are growing deeper in intimacy with Christ, closer in relationships with one another, right, as a church, that we are a family, that we are a body, and bolder on mission for the lost. But do you know the two vital things that, that all of that is based on? Some of you are checking the bulletin. Grounded in the gospel and empowered by the Spirit. The life that we are called to, the life that we are created for, is not a life that you and I can produce by our own striving and our own efforts. It's grounded in the gospel, the good news that in Jesus we are forgiven. In Jesus we encounter one who bore the penalty for all our wickedness, for all our rebellion, all our sin. On the cross, he suffered and paid the penalty. And through faith in Him, we receive His grace. We are washed clean. But not only that, through faith in Him, we are also clothed with His perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience is us. The Father reckons us as righteous because of Jesus. And that doesn't mean then right on, I can go do whatever I want. That's to miss the point. We are made new. We are brought into relationship with God. We, we are set free to live the life that we were called to live, that we were created to live. If you're a, a non-Christian, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I, I want to say this and I want you to, to hear this, that Christianity is not about cleaning yourself up and then coming to God. It's about coming to God as you are, acknowledging the wickedness of your heart and your sin and your, your utter need for, for God's grace and forgiveness. The whole Sermon on the Mount begins in that place. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they come empty-handed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Christian faith is. And so if you recognize today, my life is a mess. There's, there's ways in which I have done some awful things. I, I just want to say that it's level ground. We, we all come as broken, sinful men and women who need God's grace. So come, we, we come to Him and we acknowledge our sin and we ask for His forgiveness and we receive it and we are clothed with His righteousness and we are adopted and we, we, we receive the gift of life. Fourth thing I wanted to do this morning is to, to walk through some principles, some truths. And the first one is this, and, and really some of these are the same thing, just at different angles, getting at these important truths and principles that we need to bear in mind over the coming weeks as we walk through the details of these passages. The first thing I want to say is that it's not just about the letter, but the spirit. Some of you are familiar with Calvin and Hobbes. I saw a couple... Uh, children here reading Calvin and Hobbes on my way in. We named our oldest son, at least in my mind, we named him after Calvin and Hobbes. I love Calvin and Hobbes. His name's Calvin. <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes, there's so much richness in there. And, and I just wanted to tell you, I suppose I could have shown you, but there's, a, there's one particular uh, cartoon strip where his mom sees him, and he is totally a mess, and she says, goodness, you're filthy, into the tub with you. And the next frame shows Calvin sitting in the tub, no water. And he says, I obey the letter, if not the spirit. 
And the next panel is his mom saying, let's hear some running water. And Calvin responds with nuts. He, he, he obeyed the letter. Into the tub with you. But he missed the spirit. See, it is the spirit of the law that we need to understand. That doesn't mean that the letter doesn't matter, but it's the spirit. God has never been after our, our mechanical compliance to external rules. God is after our hearts. He wants our hearts. See, it's, it's not just that I don't kill anyone. God cares about my, my attitude towards other people and how I treat them. It's not just about the physical act of adultery. It's about what's going on in my mind and my heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, It is clear then that if we rely upon the letter, only upon the letter, we should completely misunderstand the law. We'll misunderstand everything that Jesus says. If we think it's a matter of mere compliance to this set of rules... That applies to all that we read in the Old Testament, but it applies equally to the Sermon on the Mount. We need to understand the Spirit. What, what is Jesus saying? Because if we just take it at the letter, we will miss the point. A second, really just another angle of getting at that, it's, it's not just about actions. Jesus cares about the internals. Conformity to God's commands... Obedience to God's commands is not merely about what we do. It includes our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, our desires. And, and that reveals to each one of us, if we're honest, that we're, we're in far greater need than we might want to admit. Because we might be able to follow some external things, but when we look in our heart, we recognize that, Lord, I'm broken. I, I have some wrong desires. I have some wrong thoughts. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus says these words, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are from, far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are mere human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to human traditions. See, that, that's a danger that they fell into, and that's a danger that we can fall into, of merely hearing God's Word as a list of rules, external things to comply with. But, but God's after our heart. In, in our hearts, we, we need Christ, because Christ says elsewhere, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And when we hear that and we realize, Lord, it's not just about what I do. We realize, God, have mercy. We, we need you to work in us to bring about transformation. We need you to change our hearts. We need you to change our minds. We need you to change our ambitions and our desires. We need you to do what we can't do, Lord. And here's third principle I want to highlight, and that is this, that, that what God calls us to, who God is calling us to, wanting to make us into, this is, this is not oppressive but freeing. Why, why did God give his people the law? If you've been around, you've probably heard me say this. God, God didn't like rescue people and then go, shoot, I have people, they need rules. Like, God's, what's the reason for God's law? And when did he give it to them? If you've read youth, if you're 
you were with us. We've walked through the book of Exodus a while, uh, not that many weeks ago. God rescues his people, and, and then he gives them the law. And how does the law begin? It actually begins with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. I am the Lord your God. My, my stepdad's name is Dennis. And so when we're with my mom and her husband, Chrisleen and my mom use the language of my Dennis or your Dennis. Just to keep things clear, it can be a little confusing. And when Chrisleen says my Dennis, I mean, that's, that, that's, those are words of intimacy, of relationship. I'm, I'm her Dennis. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, God's law through the entire Old Testament, through the whole Scriptures, it's never been, it's never been about obey the law and then you'll be my people. It's not like that changes between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's always been God's grace. God graciously rescues His people. And then He says, I am the Lord your God. Here's how you live as my people. The law is not just arbitrary rules that God came up with because I have people. I mean, that's, I didn't intend to ever be a father like that. I have boys. They need rules. I mean, there, there, was, there was a reason for I wanted them to grow up a certain way. God gave his law. His law is a reflection of who he is. Why does God tell us not to bear false witness, to be truthful? Because God always speaks the truth, and when we are truthful, we are, we are reflecting his image. Why does God tell us not to commit adultery? Because God is always faithful, and when we are faithful, we are reflecting his image. You see, see we were created as God's image bearers, to reflect His character in this, His creation. And sin screwed that up. It marred that. And now Christ is, through the gospel, restoring that. And so our obedience actually makes us more human. Many of us believe the lie of the enemy that, that, that God is a cosmic killjoy, that He's created these laws that, that will take away our fun, that will rob us of joy. But I want to say this to you. The truth is that you will not experience any greater joy than walking in intimate fellowship with God who made you. You were made by Him for Him. And His his laws, obeying His commands, being shaped into women and men who reflect His character in this world will give joy. It's freeing. It's freeing. Not oppressive. Fourth, God's commands are not an end in themselves. I've shared this before. I'm going to share it again just because for me it's such a powerful moment in my walk with Jesus. Some of you have heard this. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time. When, when Christine and I were first married, I was youth pastoring in B.C. And about a year after we were married, uh, there were things going on in that church and theologically that I was really uncomfortable with. And, and, I, and I just came to this place where I said, I need more Bible and theology. I, I need more theological ammunition so I can argue better. So I can show these people how they're wrong and how what they're thinking is dangerous. And so I resigned and made, began making plans to, to go to seminary. And uh, 
I, I started construction again for a short season, and Christina and I uh, began to make plans, saving up money, applied for a seminary in Chicago that I wanted to go to, was accepted, received uh, part scholarship for that, and then applied for, for inter- international married student housing, which they said was a wait list of two years typically, and we got that. Everything was falling into place. I was so excited about going to TEDS and studying. And then the summer of 98, some of you may remember, I don't know if this was my fault, you can blame me, but the Canadian dollar plummeted. And all the money that we'd saved up to go to school suddenly was insufficient and so was not allowed to cross the border to study in the States because it didn't have enough funds. I was so, so angry, so, so upset. Because that just seemed like this was, this was, everything was falling into place. This was, seemed like answers to prayer. And so instead, I very reluctantly, bitterly applied and was accepted at Regent College in Vancouver, kind of in my backyard. I thought, oh, well, I can at least go here. But I remember showing up there for the first few days of orientation, and everyone was excited. Isn't it great to be at Regent? I'm so excited. And I'm just like, shut up. I don't want to be here. And then I remember going to my first lecture, Dr. Bruce Walke, an old, godly, wise Old Testament professor, and these were the first words he said. I hope you know that you come to seminary not to load up on theological ammunition, but get to know God better. It's pierced my heart. God's law was never given to us as something for us to keep in order to be in right relationship with God. God's revealed word, his written word, was always about revealing to us the beauty and the glory and the graciousness, the goodness, the love of God for us. God does not desire mere compliance with a set of rules. He never has. God desires your heart and mine that we would know Him and love Him and delight ourselves in Him, find joy in Him, be satisfied in Him. And it is only in Him, in a relationship with Him, that you will ever experience all that you were created for. Sin promises you joy. Sin promises you satisfaction. We, we look at God's commands and we go, oh, like you're taking away all the good stuff. But He is not because He is the good thing. He is the ultimate one and it is only in Him, in, in submission to Him, in intimacy with Him that we will experience joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. We need to understand, young people, hear me. The world is lying to you. The enemy is lying to joy and satisfaction and fulfillment is found in Christ, in intimacy with Christ. Intimacy. So you can read your Bible through every year. You can know it backwards and forwards. You can study theology for decades. You can have all the answers and comply externally with the code of ethics and miss the point. Have you fallen in love with God? Have you fallen in love with Christ who gave himself for you? 
Are you seeing the beauty of who he is, the glory of who he is? Are you satisfied in him? What we encounter in the passages, the passage that we read today, as we walk through in the coming weeks, these six parts, we need to grasp that this is not a set of rules to slavishly follow. These are six examples, six illustrations of what our lives look like in various areas as our hearts are captured by the gospel, as our hearts are captured by Jesus. Over the coming weeks, we'll be looking at the trees, at the details, at these illustrations, and they're important. Jesus has things he wants to say to us. There are, there are ways in which he is going to challenge us and speak into our lives. We will look at the trees. The trees matter, but, but we must not ever lose sight of the forest. This isn't a new law. This isn't a law cranked up on steroids. This isn't an external checklist. This is about the transforming work of Jesus through the gospel by the power of his spirit. I want to close with, by quoting a few lines from Matt Mayer's song. Some of you have watched The Chosen. I think this is the theme song for it. I haven't actually watched it yet. I've been encouraged to and I need to. But this Matt Mayer song, I want to read a few lines to you. It's called The In-Between. From death to life, from darkness to shine, from fear to a peace I can't explain, from doubts to a hope, holding on and letting go of all the empty promises of shame, this is my song. I was one way, but now I am different. There was a clear change in a holy collision in who I was and who I will forever be. And he was the in-between. As we walk through, as we study the Sermon on the Mount, more than anything, I want us each to have an encounter with the preacher of the Mount, with Jesus. He is the in-between. He is the one that transforms our lives from what we were to who we will ever, forever be. Jesus, the lover of your soul. Jesus, your redeemer and rescuer. May we look to Christ and, f- and be, find our delight in Him, our satisfaction in Him, in His glorious goodness. Amen.